Hello everyone and welcome to my YouTube channel. It is a tremendous pleasure to have uh, Professor John Hearn with me today. Uh, you have all the details to follow him as an author, a professor of economics and an expert in everything that has to do with uh, monetary banking and finance. How are you, John? I'm very well, thank you. Yes, uh, managed to get back to the university and uh, and do a face-to-face -face lecture about oh, ten years ago, uh, which was uh, yeah. You're going back to face-to-face -face lectures. We are. This was uh, for potential uh, undergraduates uh, joining the university, so it was a nice. It was nice to get back there. I mean, Zoom meetings are great, but face-to-face uh, -face is. Uh, even better. So, yes, hopefully things will get back to normal, although we do worry with some of the pronouncements of the politicians, but fingers crossed. Yeah, no, I mean, it's such good news because my children, uh, two of them are at Edinburgh University, uh, are still with, uh, with, with uh, Zoom classes no, and online classes, and uh, they definitely would benefit from having at least a few one-on-one uh, uh, -on -one classes. Um, John, one of the things that uh, I would like to start talking about is, is inflation. Everybody is talking about the rise of inflation. The uh, narrative of central banks is that it's transitory and that we should not be worried and that they will continue with extremely accommodative policies. And we have seen this week that the UK inflation print came significantly above the levels that were estimated by the market. And more importantly, that in the United States, despite uh, a third month of CPI print post the base effect uh, levels, uh, we continue to see very elevated levels of inflation. So what is your, your, your view about the current situation and where we're likely to head into uh, for the end of the year? Well, it was a fairly easy uh, prediction to make uh, this time next last year uh, that we would get inflation accelerating this time because uh, of the monetary cause. Something we have to keep reminding people, but by definition, inflation is more units of money in the same number of transactions. And you higher oil prices, higher wages, uh, none of these things can increase the units of money. Uh, the only thing that can increase units of money, of course, is, uh, is the central bank. Uh, and uh, central banks managing monetary demand is the cause. So the current inflation was caused last year by them. And we have the excuses now, if you like, for what's caused inflation. Very interesting. I had a debate with a member of the Monetary Policy Committee. Uh, it was under Chatham House rules, so I can't say anything more about it, uh, uh, other than give you uh, one interesting point. Because I did accuse the Bank of England of misleading people in their inflation report uh, by uh, suggesting that inflation had cost-push causes. Um, and... Uh, I've done this on two occasions with MPC members, and they, they did say, well, no, we don't actually say uh, that this is the case. What we do in our inflation report is we report the current uh, uh, rate of inflation, and uh, we tell you which prices have gone up the most, and we leave you to make up your own mind. And, of course, next day the press will report that inflation has gone up because of an increase in oil prices or because of this or because of this. So the Bank of England and central banks are well aware 
that they're the cause of inflation, but they don't really want everyone else to be aware of that fact. Um, because of broad money growth last year, I could see inflation picking up a little bit earlier, but the um, lockdown suppression, uh, the pandemic has slowed that down because if you just look at a monetary cause where you just look at money supply and the speed that it goes round, uh, if as happened with QE, the Bank of England was uh, pushing up uh, the money stock, the lockdowns actually slowed the velocity of circulation because people weren't passing it on as quickly. And as long as you keep the lockdowns going, this inflation won't really pick up. But now we're getting back to normal and the velocity is picking up. Uh, I can see inflation getting into early double figures. Um, perhaps as we move into next year, I think it's with us for quite a long time. I think transitory is the wrong word to use. Uh, I was able to have a little bit of fun uh, because of what went out of CPI uh, a month ago and came in meant that it fell slightly, went down from 25 to 2%. So I was able to point out to the Bank of England that this is just transitory. We will be back to higher inflation uh, as with this month. Uh, and so we go. But no, I think you know, what's transitory? It's a word that uh, is transitory one year, 10 years, 20 years, 100 years. Uh, it's a Finishes, isn't it? Um, uh, and we've got we've got inflation for, for quite some time, I think, and we've got the stagflation that goes with it, and all of that has been explained sort of perfectly, if you like, by the the combination of the Austrians and the monetarists, because the Austrians are very good at explaining the stag element of this, yeah. uh, namely that we've got um, resources all in the wrong place. We've been pumping money into doing something which is hopefully temporary. Uh, now, of course, there are shortages uh, uh, in another place. We reported earlier this week that there were over a million vacancies, which was if that was good news. There are a million vacancies because people are in the wrong jobs in the wrong places. Um, and that's the stag side of stagflation. Unemployment is going to remain high, particularly with furlough stopping. Uh, so uh, we've got the, the simple cause of inflation, which is there, and monetarism uh, uh, explains it perfectly as far as I'm concerned and always has done right away through the 70s to now you can spot exactly what's going to happen by uh, to inflation just by looking at broad money aggregates. Yes, I think that that is one thing that um, many people tend to forget or, or, or want to ignore is that uh, the reason why it's accelerated in 2021 is that combination that you just mentioned. 2020, central banks increase the stock of money and, the, and the money supply significantly above demand at a moment in which the velocity of money is collapsing. Then with a very, very short uh, and abrupt recovery of that uh, uh, of, of activity, Everything just soars, and one of the points that you that you mentioned in, in one of your fabulous tweets. Always good to follow John because you know you you get uh, economics lectures in in 140 characters, <laughs> and is is that Brexit, pandemic, 
supply chain disruptions, oil do not cause inflation, that it's a monetary effect. And it's shown by the fact that we're seeing commodities in which there's not just ample, but overcapacity uh, going uh, up as much as those in which there may be some sort of uh, uh, supply challenge, or at least for a while. And coming back to, to, to the point, how, and the key thing, going to your point about the stagflation risk, is that 2020 was also a very uh, extraordinary year in the sense uh, that we saw a crisis in which the policymakers decided almost in unison to, to, to keep everything zombified, no matter the cost. No? Yeah. Obviously, exacerbates the risk of stagnation because... If anything, a crisis, if, if, if a crisis has something positive, it's that there, there's a cleanup, at least in the, in the areas where, where there's too much capacity. That was completely abandoned and we had a, a, an entire zombification of the economy. How do you see that risk of uh, stagnation going, uh, considering that central banks are now clearly saying it does not matter. We believe it's temporary and we're going to continue to have very low rates and very high liquidity injections no matter what happens. Exactly right. Zombification will continue because uh, uh, one, low interest rates are not necessary to control monetary demand. Uh, we need market rates of interest. We don't need uh, uh, officially uh, below market rates of interest as we have had. And that's going to continue, and that's going to continue because everyone's too frightened. They don't know what to do. You know, the simple model is, uh, and we argued about this in the 1980s, should we manage uh, monetary demand by quantity of money controls or by interest rates? And it came out, interest rates, that's managed by price of money. And that actually puts less pressure on government's fiscal policy if they do that. That's why it happened. But, of course, it causes a problem because you go – we need to boost the economy. Lower interest rate doesn't work. What do we do? Oh, we better lower them a bit more. It doesn't work. What do we do? Oh, we better go negative. Uh, and and this this narrative is there all the time. And I spent I was at the Bank of England when Mario Draghi was there, and um, uh, uh, it was it was Mark Carney at the time, wasn't it? Yes. And I asked the question uh, about central banks, uh, pointing out that the only way we're going to get out of this zombification, zero interest rate type policy, is for all the central banks to work together, hmm. because that will remove volatility on exchange rates. If one country tries to do it on its own, it's going to cause a problem. So it needs the Bank of Japan, Federal Reserve, ECB, uh, Bank of England, all to think about pushing interest rates up quarter point every two months or something like this until we get back to uh, some level which one would consider to be normal. And it's a bit shocking because normal, I would put now at a bank rate at about 5%. Yeah. A rough rule of thumb for me is for a bank rate to really be a couple of percentage points above the rate of inflation so that you're at least looking at a positive return uh, to savers. Uh, so you know, market rates are there. 
one of my students, a young lady, did uh, some very good research for me on interest rates at the time, looking at uh, the structure of interest rates, because interest rate isn't one thing, looking at the structure of interest rates uh, from very low, which was uh, uh, bank rate, up to two thousands of a percent uh, for payday loans, this sort of spread. Uh, and really, it was only secured lending that was kept down, which was mortgages uh, and uh, a few other very secure loans. And over the last decade, uh, unsecured uh, loans, shall we say credit cards, they're now up higher than they were before. Um, so it's really just that area that's affected. But of course, that area is what we would like to think of as assets. Uh, and it's the asset bubble is there. And the asset bubble, if you like, lets the central bank off. You know, they're, they're doing something. Their markets are buoyant. Um, your houses are okay. Their value is going up. And, and people are less sort of frightened by that than what would happen if we did put interest rates up. I remember bank rate at uh, 14.785%, I think it was. Um, you know, think of that for all these people. Unfortunately, they've gone into mortgages and they think, well, I, I've got a mortgage for the next two years at 0.99 of a percent. Um, what will happen if it goes up to 15%? Um, and the whole thing about the inflation scenario now is that if they are true to form, central banks are going to be forced to bring up nominal rates. Real rates will still be negative. You know, we go up to 7% inflation. You put interest rates up to 5%, you still have negative real rates of interest, but those nominal rates will be enough to bring up mortgages and to bring down asset prices. So, you know, that's a big problem ahead. Absolutely, it is. Because, unfortunately, not just this recovery, but the recovery from the previous crisis have been predicated on asset prices uh, continuing to be elevated. And the and this concept that Keynesians say that central banks are trying to convince savers to be investors, which I find very, let's say, diplomatic a way of saying uh, financial repression. No? Uh, but one of the things that is very difficult to explain to people is that Central banks and governments make an analysis and believe that the reason why investment and consumption are not going up as much as they would expect them to, the price of money is too high and liquidity is too low. Uh, instead of the expectations are simply incorrect based on the level of capacity, the level of demand, and the level of uh, ability to absorb more credit of households and enterprises. So it's very difficult for people to understand why negative rates are negative for them, for the average citizen, and it's very difficult for them to understand why massive quantitative easing is is also something that is is negative. I hear a lot that, well, you know, uh, you shouldn't be complaining because, quote unquote, nothing has happened. How do we explain the negatives to an average citizen? It's very difficult because um, if we just looked at house prices, 
those people in houses see a rise in the value of their assets, so they're happy. The people who want to get into the housing market don't look too carefully at this, but they're, they're told mortgage is very cheap. You can borrow a lot. They, they don't sort of notice the fact that house prices have already gone up uh, to reflect the fact that it's cheaper for them to, to get a mortgage. Uh, so they're almost misled in the early stages into thinking that they can get a mortgage and even overstretched into getting that mortgage uh, and going into the bank of mum and dad and, and, and everywhere else because they're told it's the safest investment you'll ever make buying a house. Just look at what's happened to house prices. Uh, you know, they continue to go up and up and up and, of course, un until they go down. Um, but it's a very difficult uh, thing because... You know, it's it's you you know the train's coming, but you just don't know when it's going to arrive. And my eldest son, uh, he was in London, and he said, "Dad, I'm going to buy a place, a uh, flat in Ballam for two hundred thousand uh, pounds. What do you think?" And I said, "If you can afford to pay the mortgage, buy it." So he did. I said, "But if interest rates start to go up, uh, asset values are going to fall." So. Be ready for a fall, but as long as you can afford the mortgage, buy it. 18 months later, he sold it for £400,000. Wow. Dad, I'm going to buy a, a house in Wimbledon uh, for £600,000. What do you think? I said, well, be careful. If you can afford the mortgage, buy it. But house prices are going to dip. And then he bought a house in Wimbledon, uh, sorry, in, not in Wimbledon, in Epsom. Okay. Uh, and uh, he paid about the same price in Epsom for the house that he had in, in Wimbledon. And I said the same thing again. Uh, and this has gone on for about 50. So his house in Epsom is now worth over a million pounds. And I've been warning him, be prepared for house prices to fall. And of course, all the time, interest rates are going to be held at a low price um, uh, officially. And the secured end of the market is going to be kept very low. Then you know, the house price situation works out all right. But what happens to the productive sector of the economy? What happens to the businessmen who want to borrow money, uh, the, the factory owners who want to expand their business? It's different for them because these low interest rates are a little bit deceptive. They'll go, well, look, you know, you can only offer me this for 18 months, this low rate. I'm, I'm a little bit concerned that if this goes up, I might not be able to expand my business. And so businessmen are much more reluctant to, to go into uh, a situation where they think that these rates are artificially low. And indeed, central banks have said, we will, we will soon have to normalise this. I think I've heard this every year for the last decade, that we're going to have to normalise rates soon. Um, and you know, if you've been really savvy, you know, back in 2009, 2010, you just would have borrowed as much money as you possibly could and done everything. And by now you'd be very rich. But of course, uh, um, it's not really what you want from a productive economy. What you want from a productive economy is a balanced savings machine, which is putting money in, people borrowing, people investing in new plant and machinery, people growing the economy, not people just buying assets and then buying a second house or buying shares or buying, in, buying into investment trusts. Or like you suggested earlier on, damaging their own intellect to savers if you like you know a lot of people are out there they are savers i don't understand investment i don't want to i don't want to buy something that might go down yeah. i want i i want to put my savings somewhere safe so capital protected and i want my savings to earn you know three or four or five percent 
I don't want them to earn 0.001%, which is what they're doing now. And you're forcing those people out of safe savings into investments. And then, of course, they're liable to be talked into by that, by that, by that. And uh, the old adage for buying assets is that the, the amateur comes in when prices have topped. Yeah, absolutely. The professional leaves, and then the amateur leaves as the price goes right the way down to the bottom when the professional comes back in again. And too many people are losing money in this situation who know nothing about what they're doing and therefore shouldn't be there. They should be with safe savings. And that means you need uh, an interest rate a couple of percentage points above inflation. Absolutely. I think that that is the key thing, is that uh, it all works fine while the music continues but uh, people are taking more and more risk for lower or lower rates and by taking further and further risk probably risk risk that they don't understand that the probability of losing it all is significantly higher I think that the other very important factor in terms of this uh, property chain that you that you mentioned going uh, through to my old neighborhood in Wimbledon is that um, there's a tremendously large amount of people who are simply unable to get that mortgage or to get that uh, into that property ladder because the entry point is 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 constantly rising no? so that's when we have the and and, and that uh, transfer of wealth to assets and the indebted from wages and the savers also generates very poor productivity growth, which ends up with lower real wages, which ends up with lower investment and creates this, this negative cycle of stagnation. No, that is, that is very, very concerning. But what would you believe, what would you think, you mentioned before the, the, uh, the need for central banks to coordinate their, their actions. No? But at the same time, it looks to me like central banks are trapped in their own policy. Uh, because they cannot normalize, even if they see the signals that you're mentioning, because government spending is is through the roof and deficits are too large. So, so they basically are stuck between a rock and a hard place. How do you see that situation going to to a, some level of normalization? Uh, it, it's it's very very difficult. Um, I mean, I can tell you exactly how to get the country's economy back on track, how to get other countries' economies back on track, but you wouldn't want to hear it. I mean, you would, but you collectively don't want to hear that. How do you do it? You've got to get bank rate up. So I put bank rate up a few quarter points very quickly, and I get it up to 3 4 5%. That's where bank rate should be. I'd put a rule now on governments, balance your budgets. I wouldn't allow any more budget deficits, uh, not, not until we, we've got our spending um, uh, back uh, and the proportion of GDP against national debt sort of down to 35% or something much lower. So I'd, I'd go, if we balance our budget, stop governments overspending, if we increase uh, interest rates uh, and we let the economy settle for a little while, then it'll start to grow again. And people will go, we can't do that. Yeah. How, how on earth can we do that? As politicians, how can we sort of sit here and go, we've got to cut spending, uh, we've got to raise interest rates, 
And, and so the dream is politicians know we can spend more and we can spend more and we can spend more. I don't know whether you can see this. It's just something I thought might be helpful. Does that sort of... Yes, it's pretty clear, actually. Yes. You can see that. Yeah. Um, I, I often sort of explain the difference between the right and left in politics and the right and left in economics. Yeah. So along the top there, you've got the percentage that government spends of your national income. Yeah. Uh, and for me, the right and the left, well, the right is fairly obvious. If government is, is spending nothing of your national income, you've got the anarchy, no government at all. That's the far right. Yeah. The left in economics, as far as I'm concerned, is once you go past about 50% of uh, your national income being spent by government. And so my centre is nicely at 25%. Now, politics lies within a little band left of centre here. This is where politics is. The right and left of politics is there. It's around, at the moment, 35 to 45% or even 50% of national income is being spent by uh, the government. Now, that little column there has sort of moved over during the centuries, uh, and it's moved further and further uh, uh, towards uh, the bigger amount of money spent by government. And it does mean that if you want to be an economist who is taken seriously by government and is offering advice and getting a job in government, You've got to be talking to this column right over here. So that's what Keynesians did. And that's what the modern monetary theorists are doing now. Yeah. Now, look at Austrians and look at monetarists. Uh, they're way out of it. They're sort of, you know, I will be spending less than 25% of national income will be spent by government. So no one wants to listen to that. No one wants to listen to the, to the real arguments about where the economy uh, should be. Uh, and therefore, you would always ignore the Austrians, you would always ignore the monetarists because they're not telling you what you want to hear. I mean, they're, they're talking about things that uh, oh, we couldn't consider. We want people to talk in this little band over here about how can we spend just a little bit more. I know we're spending 45% of national income, but we, you know, suppose we went to 46%, what would that do? Um, and the Keynesians were there talking within this band. So that's why we all listen to the Keynesians. And it, only because they mucked things up so badly in the 70s did, did sort of Friedman and Hayek get a little look in uh, at, uh, at being realistic people to listen to. Uh, but then again, we moved away from them. And so we look, I think you mentioned modern monetary theory before. I mean, that's the latest one to fit into that category of telling governments, yes, you can spend more money. Uh, there's no problem as long as we've got an output gap. As long as we've got uh, low inflation, uh, we can we can pump money into the economy, and it's a good thing pumping money into the economy because that brings the taxes back. And yeah. uh, you know, if we ever get inflation, it's uh, you know it can it can increase uh, we can increase taxes a little bit to absorb it. So I think it's Warren Mosler and Stephanie Kelton and uh, Bill Mitchell and uh, uh, Ray are out there sort of trying to sell this to people. Sounds great to politicians. Sounds great to everyone who thinks, yeah, governments have got to do everything. Absolutely. It's the worst thing you could possibly have. You know, I've written four articles on the blog which explain, you know, four big things that uh, um, modern monetary theory has got wrong. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's where we are. We're in a situation, unfortunately, where I can tell you what we've got to do. Yeah. We've got to get interest rates up. 
We've got to get government spending down. We've got to balance budgets. Uh, and you'll go, yeah, I agree with you. But how on earth can we explain that to anyone else? Yeah. And, you know, you're going, do we need a world war, a revolution? Do we need the whole economy around the economies around the world to really collapse? And then perhaps people will go, well, what's the alternative? And of course, for me, there is only one alternative all the way through this. And this is you need capitalism to work properly. Yeah. Capitalism works properly with stable prices, little interference by government, and let people pursue their own lines of business. And the ones that are successful are the ones that change the world. And the ones who are not successful uh, gave it a go and it didn't quite work, did it? So that's the only You've got to get back to capitalism. How will ever do that? Real capitalism, I mean, um, yeah. not, not crony capitalism. I don't want governments buying the things from the private sector. I want private individuals buying things from the private sector. Absolutely. I always, uh, I was asked once um, if everything that we are saying um, is right and the economy is going to grow, uh, why don't governments uh, implement them? No? And I explained it this way. No? I said, imagine that there are two economists sitting in the office of a prime minister of a nation. One, me, is telling him that he needs to step back, that he needs to let the economy breathe, that he needs to let businesses invest in what they find opportunities in and families save and look for opportunities of prudent investment when they come and when they arise. And that the government needs to administer the revenues that it gets, not look for the revenues it needs for whatever spending it is. And then you have another one in the same office that says, you're absolutely wrong. You, Mr. President, Mr. Prime Minister, or Mrs. Prime Minister, whatever it is, you are God. You have absolutely no need to follow any economic rule because you can spend all you want and the central bank is going to monetize it and it's your role to be the lender and the investor and the spender of first resort, not the uh, administer of last resort. And I said, who, who gets elected, who gets nominated for minister of economy? <laughs> it's pretty obvious, no? That is... Yeah, that is the upside-down economics uh, position of MMT, isn't it? No? It's exactly right. And what you do is more or less the same as I do with my undergraduates because someone will always come out and they will say to me, look, John, why don't you get into politics and why don't you get all these things changed? And I said, I couldn't get into politics. I said, what would you do if I brought in another politician who stood next to me and I said, this is what you've got to do. You've got to stop spending. You've got to release the economy. You've got to put interest rates up. And the person next to me says, no, no, we can do everything. We can spend more money. We can create jobs. We can increase welfare benefits. Who do you vote for? And obviously, you don't vote for me. You vote for the person who says they can do everything. And, uh, and it's exactly the same. You know, I thought the same, and therefore we use the same sort of analogies uh, when we're explaining it. Uh, John, I would like to um, use some of the arguments that modern monetary theory defenders use and uh, set, present them to you and see what, what, what your, your, your answer is. No? First, 
Any government with monetary sovereignty can issue all the currency it requires without any risk of creating inflation because government spending will create demand for money and therefore the supply and demand of money will rise in tandem. Therefore, there will be no inflation. Yeah. Um, I suppose the easiest way to tell uh, them that that is wrong is just to look through history and see all those economies that have collapsed through excessive money printing uh, and hyperinflation. If you do that to an MM tier, they go, no, no, hyperinflation isn't caused by printing lots of money. There is uh, a cause of this, which is using shortages, which is a problem. Uh, And the big mistake that they make here is that they confuse the cause of money printing with the cause of inflation. I agree with MMT that there are lots of different countries that have caused hyperinflation. Why did they cause it? It was all for different reasons, you know, whether it's Venezuela, whether it's Germany, uh, whichever country is that did it, there was a different reason. So there are different causes of turning the printing presses on. If you don't turn the printing presses on, you don't get inflation. If you turn them on, you get inflation, and it gets higher and it gets higher. And all, all hyperinflations are the result of money printing. Now, of course, MMT, no, that's not the case. Uh, MMT, you've got an output gap. You've got an output gap and you can put money into the economy with no risk of inflation, which is a bit Keynesian as far as I'm concerned. But you can put money into the economy without any risk of inflation. Uh, And uh, Stephanie Kelton, in her book, Budget Deficit, I try and get her on this, but she won't really respond, makes a comment and she says that cost push inflation has been the cause of all inflations for the last 100 years. Um, and, you know, hopefully within a few seconds, I can remove that by saying there's no such thing as cost-push inflation. That is a myth. You cannot have cost-push inflation. You know, the whole of your argument collapses uh, there because inflation can only occur if you've got... Uh, um, too much money chasing too few goods, the old Oxford English Dictionary of Definition. Um, yeah, so I, I remember trying to, trying to tell uh, Miss Kelton uh, a very simple example, Argentina and Uruguay. Argentina and Uruguay are neighbours. They have exactly the same costs. They have exactly the same inputs and almost the same, the same uh, very, very similar economy. One has 3% inflation, the other has 48% inflation. Who is, what is the difference? The difference is one is printing pesos, like there's no tomorrow, Argentina, Uruguay isn't. It's as simple as that. And there's, and to say that the inflation in Argentina is due to cost push is absolutely insane. When you have around it countries with 3 4% inflation at best, some of them with 1.5%. But the, the, the easiest example against Kelton's uh, message is, uh, okay, we have same populist uh, left-wing government, Ecuador, Venezuela, same, same policy, Bolivia, same thing. Ecuador doesn't have its own currency, it's dollarized. Venezuela has its own currency, the Bolivar. What happens, who has hyperinflation and who has below average inflation? Ecuador, uh, same policies, no? Same, same uh, uh, ideology, etc. So uh, you know the the, the examples are, are 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 enormous. I'm going to go to uh, the other the, another one that I absolutely love is that 
Oh, the, the examples of Zimbabwe, Argentina, Venezuela, uh, Iran, Turkey are not valid because those are not monetary sovereign countries. What we're talking about, we, the um, MMT defenders, is about a fully monetary sovereign country can print all the money that it wants. Well, that's right. You then go send them back to the Weimar Republic, don't you, in Germany? And so there was a sovereign uh, uh, producing uh, excessive money and they caused hyperinflation. Uh, you look at, I mean, I would just illustrate it with high inflation. The UK. High, high, yeah, high inflation, not hyperinflation. If you go back to the 70s in the UK, you've got your inflation up to uh, 30% nearly. Um, they try and claim it's 26%, but uh, it tipped up to 30% uh, before they adjusted it slightly downwards. Um, why? Uh, and it, again, it was quite simple because as soon as you went off the gold exchange standard in 1971, the Keynesians were let free. Right, we can boost the economy. The target was we can expand the economy by 5% a year, economic growth by just pumping more money into the economy. And so, uh, you know, they pumped more money into the economy, they got 5% inflation. Now, the Keynesian model is, with 5% inflation, we need to expand the money supply by 5% to accommodate all these cost push uh, pressures, uh, and another 5% in order to grow uh, the economy. And then they get 10% inflation. And they go, oh, well, we need to expand the money supply by 10%, add another 5%, and then they get 15% inflation. And then it goes on and it gets up to around 30%. And people go, I don't think Keynesian economics works, does it? Um, you know, it was a great example of, you know, pushing money into an economy. Just does absolutely nothing at all. Um, you know, ideally, I would like 0% inflation. I accept I accept the fact that 0% inflation is not realistic because you're going to dip into deflation to get that average. And deflation is something that has a different mindset, if you like. You go into behavioral economics here because once people start to see prices falling, then they put back purchases. As soon as they put back purchases, velocity slows and they fall a bit further. So, you know, I'm happy to accept a target of 2% inflation and go, all right, we're going to work with that. It's not good. Yeah. Uh, 9% is good. 2% is probably better than half a percent deflation. Uh, so, it, you know, I can see those sort of targets as being something that you achieve. And I think central banks can achieve it. And I think that uh, um, the sort of 97 period, uh, Mervyn King through to 2006, sort of showed fairly sensible Bank of England policy, which gets interest rates bubbling around market rates, and it kept inflation very low. Uh, and then, of course, uh, when things started to fall apart, then people just started throwing silly ideas out. I was quite happy with QE as a one-off thing to avoid deflation after the global financial crisis. Mm. Uh, what I wasn't happy for was for interest rates to be brought right the way down. You know, I said, that's your big mistake. You're moving those interest rates down is the mistake. You could have QE'd uh, and stopped any deflation, and then you could have got back. I mean, I like open market operations. Why do I like open market operations? Because they were done in secret. You put the money, the cash into the economy, you took it out of the economy, no one knew what was going on. Uh, and therefore, there was no real perception of anything that might change people's ideas about what's happening. Yeah. So if you put QE into the uh, the mix, then QE is something that is transparent. 
everyone talks about it and, and no one really understands what QE is. And it is just money printing. And the Bank of England didn't help there because if you ever went into the Bank of England, uh, they had a little booklet about QEing, uh, which explained all things about QE and nowhere did it say it's money printing. And even you know people like um, uh, modern monetary theory talk about central bank reserves uh, as if they're not cash. Yeah. But of course, they are 100% backed by cash. The cash is not required because we can just transfer these digits around. And if we go back to modern monetary theory, I, I just have the feeling always that if you put a group of accountants into a room and lock the door and say, come out with a theory to manage the economy, they would have come out with modern monetary theory. Absolutely. I don't, I don't think they understand economics all that well. And they confuse money with income. Uh, and they think that governments create money when they spend and destroy money when they take in taxes, whereas we well, you know it's all the uh, Keynes told us, the circular flow of income. These are just withdrawals from the flow and injections back into the flow. The actual putting more money into the economy is something totally different, which is monetary policy, not fiscal policy. Um, and I, you know, I really find it almost impossible to develop an argument with modern monetary theories. So uh, lots of them block me on Twitter, which yeah. is <laughs> a good good indication that they don't know what to say. Um, but uh, so I've got four articles in there. One explains that they don't understand the rate of interest. They don't understand the quantity of money. They don't, the job guarantee as well, which is a sort of add-on. Understand what causes hyperinflation. You know, those four things, uh, as far as I'm concerned, just uh, a game. No, completely. One of the things that I find very intellectually dishonest about uh, modern monetary theory defenders is the first argument that I said before. Oh, you know, such and such and such example doesn't count because those were not really monetary sovereign countries. It never, no, no, no example counts. That's to, that's to start with. No. Yeah. Uh, second is that once you basically show one, one, there are numerous examples of sovereign nations that have defaulted uh, with uh, having a sovereign currency. Second, there are numerous examples, and the reality shows that the supply of money doesn't lead demand for money. It's the opposite. Mm -hmm. yeah, so it's upside down economics. And then once you've you establish all those things, they always resort, which I'm sure you have witnessed, uh, suffered, to the same argument, which is, oh, you don't understand money. Yeah? And, and they say, look, you don't understand money, uh, and we are only saying what it is. We're not driving policy. But they are. Actually, they are. They are defending a very sim a simple policy, which is, you increase the size of governments on the way in with monetary policy. You increase the uh, balance sheet of the central bank to finance higher government spending. And then they say, oh, and, in, and if inflation creeps up, then, it, then we tax it away. Who do you tax it away from? From the households and enterprises. Therefore, you increase the size of governments as well on the way out. So you're only increasing the size of government. And another important thing is probably uh, you you mentioned a couple of times before what drives economic growth and productivity. Yeah? 
And we have grown accustomed to the idea that government spending is the leading platform uh, to, to get the economy going uh, in the middle of a recession. How do you respond to that, and particularly the, the role of government spending in a, in a period of recovery? No? Right. Bas basic rule of government spending is that governments spend all money wastefully and inefficiently. The only way economies grow is if money is spent efficiently and without waste. And you can look almost every example of government spending, whatever they do, it's just wasteful spending. They're not spending, it's just demand stimulation. And, and so, you know, there's a theory that explains that's okay. You know, even down to Keynes and let's dig a few holes and fill them in again. Um, it, it's wasteful. So government spending is wasteful and will never grow an economy. And I don't know of any evidence where government spending growing has grown an economy. And yeah. they'll go, oh, no, if government spends money, these people will be employed. And I say, well, the rough rule of thumb is for every person employed by the government in the public sector, you lose more than one job in the private sector to finance it. And to me, there is only one source of economic growth, and there's only one source of economic growth uh, right uh, the way through history, which is the two I's. Uh, that's invention and innovation. They're the only things that drive economic growth. Where do invention and innovation come from? They come from the private sector of the economy. And people go, no, they don't. All these wonderful things governments have done, they came from the public sector. And I go, yes, they did come from the public sector, but how much waste did you get? because you've got one thing that actually came out of it that worked. The whole thing about government is when they put money into something and it goes wrong, what's the solution? Didn't have enough money, let's put some more. Private sector, put money into something and it doesn't work, you're out of business. That's the end of it. Forget that idea, let's move on to something that does work. But with government, it just goes on and on and on. It's wasteful, it does nothing to grow an economy uh, and... Uh, Go right back to the 70s, great example, because the target at the beginning of the 70s was to grow the economy by 5% a year. Yeah. At the end of the decade, it grew by 0.6% over that decade every year. It just does not work. Uh, capitalism is the only thing that drives economic growth, and the government can't do that. So as far as I'm concerned, the government needs to keep out of it. I'm quite happy for the fact that the government have got to do certain things. They've got to provide the public good. I'm actually very happy if I could find a government that could manage the National Health Service and could manage education. I think those two merit goods need support uh, in order to improve things in society. Uh, outside that, don't let governments get involved in anything else. This is why I would keep the percentage of government spending down to less than 25% of national income. Uh, you know, I'd be happier down around 20% of national income. But it's that situation you go, what's the best way for an economy to grow? And it's to say, government, do nothing. Just let it grow naturally through capitalism. Yeah. And I'll prove it. You can't do anything. You know, everyone will just, you're just dreaming. You're just, I'm not dreaming because, you you know, the evidence is as you go back through history, growth was always someone's bright idea. You know, we made wheels around instead of square, and then we invented machines that you could tap, and then we invented computers, and then we did this, and then we did that. And these are the things which really make our lives better off. Uh, and I, again, I tell my students, if you see a, um, an entrepreneur jumping into his uh, 
uh, nice Rolls Royce, pop over and shake his hand and thank him for what he's done. If you see a politician getting into their nice Rolls Royce, then go over there and thump them. Um, it, you know, they're not the people. You know, my argument to politicians is the best politicians are the ones that do the least damage. In other words, all politicians do damage. That's why it's the ones that just do the least damage. I don't want them doing things. I, I want them to look after the public good. And that's creating the level playing field, if you like, the rules and the regulations. Let's have fair play. Uh, you know, let's have two teams or three teams or whatever it is against each other, all fair play, all doing, and the best team wins. Um, you know, that's what I want. And governments can provide those rules and regulations. Um, Outside that, I don't really want them to do anything else. I want them just to leave the capitalist economy to, yeah. to go off its own bat. In, in that uh, line of thought, I have always found also very intellectually dishonest this concept of the entrepreneurial state that uh, Matsukato has uh, uh, moved around. No? no this, sorry, can you say that again? I missed what you said. Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, one of the things that I find very intellectually dishonest is the concept of the entrepreneurial state that Matsukato uh, published in her book. No, Because the first thing that I found incredibly interesting about that book is that it can only find a handful of examples in which government uh, spending or government uh, financing, not even government spending, government financing, uh, generated some, uh, some inventions. But the other thing is that basically for her, the entire uh, process of innovation and creation of a product was down to the invention of one thing. So, uh, for example, she says that the iPhone is a creation of, that comes from government spending. It's basically using one tool and thinking that everything else that generated this magnificent tool that everybody finds worse is, is worthless, that all that did not mean anything, which is basically like saying that the guy that invented the automobile actually didn't invent it because the wheel was already invented. No, that's one of the things. The other you mentioned, very important, I had a chat with Paul Krugman a few a couple of years ago before COVID, which he said, oh, there are numerous examples of government spending leading growth and generating higher growth. And in the Eurozone, you have them very clearly. And I was surprised because I said, well, the Eurozone is not growing. It's where it was 2019. And the Eurozone was already in a massive slowdown before COVID happened. And he said, well, that's because they stopped spending. <laughs> that's, that are, so those two things, the fact that on one side, you ignore everything that, that, is, that has led to the, to the creation of the iPhone and bring down to the, uh, the chip or the, or the 4G. Uh, and you basically say that, oh, if government uh, if growth slowed down was because you didn't spend enough. Those two things actually prove what you just say is that wasteful spending and no limit budget is the core of government spending no would you say that that is is that at the end of the day there is no incentive to generate better goods and services at a lower cost it's simply a question of budget no would you agree with that exactly exactly right and governments throwing money into the economy uh, and economists looking at it often uh, 
point out that nominal national income has grown. They forget the real national income hasn't grown. They sort of point at a nominal number and say, look, that's gone up, hasn't it? <laughs> yes, not real. That's not real growth in the economy. And what you get, I think, with politicians, obviously, if you throw out 20 things, one might be successful. Yeah. And I have noticed, uh, and wars are a great time for inventing things, but then, you know, you have to invent things during war. And they go, well, you know, we've invented radar and we've done all these things. And think, well, you wouldn't have done that if you hadn't had a war. If you hadn't had a government, you wouldn't have had a war for a start. Yeah. Um, and it's, with politicians, you see it all the time. People come to them and say, is this a good idea? Could you do this? And straight away it tips over in their head, votes in this. Yes, of course they are. Yeah, we can do that. We can do that. We can do that. So, you know, a politician might do 20 things. 19 of them will fail. But one actually is a good idea and successful. So the politician will obviously jettison 19 things and forget they ever said anything about them and just say, you know, this is my legacy. I did this. Uh, can I have a statue, please? Or wh whatever it is. If you like, it's luck. If you throw enough money, enough things, you're bound to find something successful. But the whole thing about capitalism is that individuals don't take other people's money to do this. They don't uh, um, uh, force money from the taxpayer to do this. They have ideas. They might use their own money or they find someone to come along with them. They'll throw this money in. And if it works, they become very rich. Great. If it doesn't work, they lose all their money. Uh, and that's the end of it. Mm -hmm. It's never the end of it when government get involved in doing things, um, as we see time and time again, waste, waste, followed by more waste. And it's uh, and it's it's so evident that it's, uh, it's 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 completely amazing that we continue to hear the the, the message that the, that this time is going to be is going to be different. Uh, John, it's it, we've spent quite a lot of time and it's been a, a great 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 conversation. Uh, we're going to give all the details to follow John. You must follow his blog and all his writings. He's got some tremendous articles and uh, follow him on Twitter. Um, YouTube uh, the video below. Sorry, you said. Some YouTube lectures as well. Um, absolutely, absolutely. The YouTube lectures, you were going to include them also in the description of the video below. Uh, uh, we, we highly recommend those. And, um, and it's, it's worth because it's uh, for everyone that's interested in economics, what I find admirable about John is the ability to explain things in a way that most of us are simply simply unable to. So thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much for this chat, and uh, and look forward to continuing at some other time in the in the near future. Good to talk to you, Daniel, and also to promote your work as well, which I've read uh, with enthusiasm over the years. Because there's a lot you say and a lot you do on Twitter and various other social media platforms that raise people's perception and ideas about what's out there and what could be done and. Uh, um, well, hopefully together we can uh, we can change the world. But uh, <laughs> we wait. <laughs> Good to you. Have a great day. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you for watching this video. Please subscribe to my channel, like my videos, leave your comments below, and keep defending freedom. Thank you very much.